All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton standing in the confessional corner as we continue our journey through the month of July through the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope. This week, we're going to look at the testimony of history and the refutation of the arguments of the Roman theologians and especially the arguments of the Pope. As we'll see, that history doesn't even hold up to the Pope's claims of being the head of the church by divine right. And we continue this look because it is a major problem in the Reformation. It is also a major problem now because anybody who tries to set themselves up as the head of the church is trying to take over Jesus's spot in the church. And we must be wary of anyone wanting to take away from Jesus. So this week we look at Paragraphs 12 through 31 of the power and primacy of the Pope. Chapter 12, or paragraph 12. The Council of Nicaea resolved that the Bishop of Alexandria should administer the churches in the east, and the Roman Bishop the suburban churches, that is, those in the Roman provinces in the west. From this start, by a human law, i.e., the resolution of the council, the authority of the Roman bishop first arose. If the Roman bishop already had superiority by divine law, it would not have been lawful for the council to take away any right from him and transfer it to the bishop of Alexandria. No, all the bishops of the East should always have sought ordination and confirmation from the bishop of Rome. Our Council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical council of 325, Many great things brought about with that. But one of the things that is brought about is that the Pope did not call for this council. Emperor Constantine called for this council to settle the issue between the Orthodox and the Arians so that he might have a united home front so that he might be able to battle the French and the Turks, both of whom were trying to invade the Holy Roman Empire. But in the Council of Nicaea, they grant the Bishop of Rome high standing, but alongside the Bishop of Alexandria. Later on, this would be transferred from Alexandria to Constantinople as the Roman imperial capital once again moves from Rome to splitting with Constantinople to then being just in Constantinople after Rome fell. But if the Bishop of Rome already had this power by divine right, the council sinned by giving half of his authority to the Bishop of Alexandria. But there was no divine authority. Otherwise, the Council of Nicaea would never have done this. They wanted to set up the fact that you had Rome on one side, you had Alexandria on the other side, and the two of them could work together in tandem. We move on. The Council of Nicaea also determined that bishops should be elected by their own churches in the presence of one or more neighboring bishops. This was observed also in the West in the Latin churches, as Cyprian and Augustine testify. For Cyprian says in his fourth letter to Cornelius, So as for the divine observance and apostolic practice, you must carefully keep and practice what is also observed among us and in all of the provinces. To celebrate ordination properly, whatever bishops of the same province live nearby should come together with the people for whom a pastor is being appointed. The bishop should be chosen in the presence of the people who most fully know the life of each candidate. We have seen this done among us at the ordination of our colleague Sabinus. 
By the vote of the entire brotherhood and by the judgment of the bishops who had assembled in their presence, the bishop's office was conferred and hands were laid on him. This is the ancient way of ordination where you brought somebody up from among your midst in the congregation and they became the pastor. There were no seminaries back then. There was no tract for you to be able to go through a certain number of courses to be able to be considered and then either placed or called to a place. But we still keep the fact that the neighboring pastors, especially of, and in Missouri Senate, especially of the circuit for which the church is in, to come and to confirm the fact that the office of the pastor has been given to this man and the hands might be laid on him. We still have this. We just don't have the raising up from the congregation, which can be good, can be bad, because there are some of these kids that you remember what they did when they were little. And the idea of them being the pastor one day doesn't always sit well with people. I mean, people don't want to have the man who is standing up in the pulpit preaching God's word, the man who is standing in front forgiving sins, being the little kid who used to break windows with his baseball. I mean, you just, people don't want that. They have come to like the idea of having somebody from somewhere completely different. We continue on in paragraph 15. Cyprian calls this custom a divine tradition and an apostolic observance. He affirms that it is observed in almost all the provinces. In the greater part of the world, in the Latin and Greek churches, neither ordination nor confirmation was sought from a bishop of Rome. Therefore, it is clear enough that the churches did not then grant superiority and domination to the bishop of Rome. Again, we go back to Cyprian's examination of it, and Rome is nowhere considered in there. It is the congregation and the surrounding bishops to make sure they can work with this guy to help to teach him, to help him to grow into the office of bishop. Such superiority is impossible. It is just not possible for one bishop to be the overseer of the churches of the whole world. Churches in the most distant lands cannot seek ordination from only one person. It is clear that Christ's kingdom is scattered throughout the whole world. Today, there are many churches in the East that do not seek ordination or confirmation from the Roman bishop. Since the superiority the Pope claims for himself is impossible and has not been acknowledged by churches in the greater part of the world, it is clear enough that it was not instituted by Christ and does not spring from divine law. Many ancient councils have been proclaimed and held in which the Bishop of Rome did not preside, such as that of Nicaea and most others. This, too, testifies that the Church did not then acknowledge the primacy or superiority of the Bishop of Rome. As I said, Nicaea was called by the Emperor. Many of the other ecumenical councils that the Roman Church and the Eastern Orthodox and the Lutherans and many most other Christians who hold fast to the historic Christianity most of them were not called by the Pope. They were called by the people in that area, or they were called by the emperor to clear up issues. And so when the Bishop of Rome came, sometimes the, sometimes the Bishop of Rome didn't even go to the councils. So if the Pope is, by divine right, the head of the church, they definitely shouldn't have had a council without him there. They definitely should not have had a council there where he was in attendance, where he was not presiding if all of that were true. 
but the earliest churches did not see it as true. We're going to finish up this part of the historical run in paragraphs 18 to 21. Jerome says, If there is a question about authority, the world is greater than the city. Wherever there has been a bishop, whether at Rome or Eugenium or Constantinople or Regium or Alexandria, he has the same dignity and priesthood. Pope Gregory, writing to the Patriarch at Alexandria, forbids that he be called the universal bishop. In the records, he says that in the Council of Chalcedon, the primacy was offered to the Bishop of Rome, but it was not accepted. Last, how can the Pope be over the entire church by divine right when the church elects him? And what of the custom that gradually prevailed of bishops of Rome being confirmed by the emperors? When for a long time there had been conflicts over the primacy between the bishops of Rome and Constantinople, the emperor Phocas finally determined that the primacy should be assigned to the bishop of Rome. But if the ancient church had acknowledged the primacy of the Roman pontiff, this conflict could not have occurred, nor would the emperor have needed to make the decree. So as we finish up this run through history, before we get into the Roman arguments, we see that there has been so many historical understandings that do not have the Bishop of Rome as the head of the entire church. And I wonder how that would work if God had actually done that. And we have the Reformation. So would the Bishop of Rome be the head of the Lutheran churches and the Anglican churches and the Baptist churches and the non-denominational churches, would he still be over all of them, or would they all be considered apostates? Well, we know the answer from Rome. We're all considered apostates. Anybody who does not go to a church in subservience to the Bishop of Rome. All right, let's move on to their arguments now. They cite against us certain passages, namely Matthew 16, 18 and 19. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Also, I will give you the keys. Also, John 21, 15, feed my lambs, and some others. Since this entire controversy has been fully and accurately treated elsewhere in the books of our theologians, and everything cannot be reviewed here, we refer to those writings and wish them to be considered repeated here. Yet we will briefly reply about the interpretation of the passages above. So once again, Melanchthon says, we have talked about this many times before. We have whole books and libraries on these topics. Go look them up. We're not going to do it all over again. But we will take to account some of the passages that have been brought up in this immediate context. In all these passages, Peter is the representative of the entire assembly of apostles, as appears from the text itself. Christ does not ask Peter alone when he says, Who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, 15. What is said here to Peter alone in the singular number, I will give you, singular, the keys, and whatever you, singular, bind, 16.19, is expressed elsewhere in the plural, Matthew 18.18, 18, whatever you, plural, shall bind. John 20.23, 20, if you, plural, forgive the sins of anyone. These words show that the keys are given to all the apostles alike, and that all the apostles are sent forth alike. They want to make big deals about Peter and the couple of verses where Peter is singled out, where the exact same thing is said two chapters later in the plural for all of the apostles. And when we have that great moment on Easter evening where Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit, it's not just Peter that receives the Holy Spirit. It is everyone who receives the Holy Spirit. 
on Pentecost. It is not just Peter who is there in the power of the Holy Spirit preaching, although it is only his sermon that we have. We don't know if the other 11 were preaching the same sermon or if they were preaching different things. But what we have is the preaching that was done. And this is all done by everyone alike. It was not just Peter. So we continue on. In addition, it must be recognized that the keys belong not to the person of one particular man, but to the church. Many most clear and firm arguments show this. For Christ, speaking about the keys, adds, for example, if two of you agree on earth, Matthew 18, 19, therefore he grants the keys first and directly to the church. This is why it is first the church that has the right of calling. For just as the promise of the gospel belongs certainly and immediately to the entire church, so the keys belong immediately to the entire church, because the keys are nothing else than the office whereby this promise is communicated to everyone who desires it, just as it is actually manifest that the church has the power to ordain ministers of the church. And Christ speaks in these words, Whatsoever you shall bind, etc., and indicates to whom he has given the keys, namely to the church, where two or three are gathered together in my name. Likewise, Christ gives supreme and final jurisdiction to the church when he says, tell it unto the church. All right, so the keys, as we will talk about when we get into the catechism and talk about the office of the keys, they are given to the church. The church then allows the pastor to be the public representative of that congregation in doing the work of the Office of the Keys. We don't have to bring everybody in front of the entire congregation, like in an altar call, to have them confess their sins. Although growing up in the Church of Christ and having altar calls every service, yeah, most people just, their confession was, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Please pray for me. Sometimes we knew what the sins were because they were rather public sins. Many times we had no clue. But again, it was that simple conf- confession I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what absolution was given? None. The closest thing to an absolution was don't do it again. But then again, but was also in a church that did not believe in the power of the keys, did not believe that man had the ability to forgive sins, but only God forgives sins. But again, when Jesus institutes the office of the ministry, he grants he plants it in the forgiveness of sins. We continue on. As for the declaration on this rock, I will build my church, Matthew 16, 18. Certainly the church has not been built upon the authority of a man. Rather, it has been built upon the ministry of the confession Peter made, in which he proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Matthew 16, 16. Therefore, Christ addresses Peter as a minister on this rock, that is, this ministry. Therefore, he adds him as a minister of this office in which this confession and doctrine is to be in operation and says, upon this rock, that is, this preaching and teaching office. Now we have here, on this rock I will build my church. Peter's name means rock. But it is not Peter that Jesus is building it on, because Peter, as we see in the scriptures, is a shifting foundation. 
There is no security there in him. But the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, now that is solid. That is what the foundation of the church is all about. The fact that Jesus is the Son of the living God, who has died and rose to forgive our sins. We continue on. Furthermore, the ministry of the New Testament is not bound to places and persons like the Levitical Old Testament ministry was. Rather, it is spread throughout the whole world. That is where God gives his gifts, apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers, Ephesians 4.11. Nor does this ministry work because of the authority of any person, but because of the word given by Christ, Romans 10.17. Nor does the person add anything to this word in office. It matters not who is preaching and teaching it. If there are hearts who receive and cling to it, to them it is done as they hear and believe. Most of the Holy Church Fathers, such as Origen, Cyprian, Augustine, Hilary, and Bede, interpret the passage on this rock in this way, as not referring to the person of Peter. Chrysostom says this, Upon this rock, not upon Peter, for he built his church not upon man, but upon the faith of Peter. But what was that faith? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hilary says, The Father revealed to Peter that he should say, You are the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, 17. Therefore, the building of the church is upon this rock of confession. This faith is the foundation of the church. As for what is said in John 21, 15 to 19, Feed my lambs, and do you love me more than these? It does not follow from this passage that a peculiar superiority was given Peter. Christ tells him, Feed, that is, teach, preach the word, the gospel, or rule the church with the word, the gospel, which task Peter has in common with the other apostles. As we get into John 21, yes, Peter is asked, do you love me more than these? Because Peter had boastfully claimed that though everybody else would fall away, he would stay by Jesus throughout everything and would die with him. Yeah, he's one of the first ones to run. So Jesus has to reinstate him. But the mission to feed the lambs is not just given to to Peter. He is told this to show that he is being restored back to his apostolic office. He is given back the authority to go and to preach and to teach that his denials of Jesus have been forgiven. All right, we'll finish up here in paragraph 31. The second article is even clearer. Christ gave the apostles only the spiritual power, that is, the command to teach the gospel, to announce the forgiveness of sins, to administer the sacraments, to execute the excommunicate sorry, uh, the godless without bodily force by the word. He did not give them the power of the sword, the right to establish, occupy, or bestow kingdoms of the world, Romans 13.4. For Christ says, Go, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, Matthew 28.19-20. Also, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you, John 20, 21. It is clear that Christ was not sent to bear the sword or possess a worldly kingdom. As he himself says, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. And Paul says, not that we lord it over your faith, 2 Corinthians 1, 24. And the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and so forth. Christ gives the church spiritual power. The church is not to be trying to set up 
its own kingdom. The church is not trying to make heaven on earth. The church is there to preach and teach the gospel, to forgive the sins of those who repent, to withhold forgiveness from those who do not repent, and to administer the sacraments. That is the purpose of the church. And Rome, in taking over as the universal bishop, has decided to make it into his own kingdom, and a kingdom basically in his own image. And that is not what Jesus says when he says to go and make disciples of all nations. He wants that by teaching and baptizing. Those are the things the church does. Those are the things that we need to focus on. That's all for this week. Next week we'll get into the next part of it where we talk about is the Pope really the Antichrist? Melanchthon has a lot to say on that. We saw in the small cult articles, Luther has a lot more harsh words to say about it. So I encourage you, if you want to go back uh, to look at that, go for it. Uh, and that will prepare you for next week. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton thanking you for standing in the confessional corner with me, hoping that it has strengthened you to help you wrestle with the theology around you. Amen. <laughs>